Holy Spirit, we pray that you would be so present in this place today. Um, Father, we thank you for meeting us where we are, but we also thank you for not leaving us there. And so I just pray today, Father, that as we look into your word, as we sing together, that our hearts would be just so drawn to you and that we would have open ears to hear your word today. I pray that you would speak through me. In your name, amen. You may go ahead and be seated. Well, good morning. I'm glad to be with you guys this morning. Um, we are, as Kyle said, we're just so excited to be having the problem of adding seats. And I would just reiterate, you are not bothering me if you text me on a Saturday. I would rather know what's going on, and we want to try and help you be here if you want to be here. So go ahead and reach out. Well, this morning, I have to admit that my sermon um, is a little bit of a labor of love. I Sometimes I'm learning that sometimes hearing from the Lord is a process, and that's not always the easiest process. So I kind of started in one place this week and then landed in a different place, but um, I'm so thankful. And I would also add that for those of you who are really on a journey of trying to learn to hear God's voice and do what he says, that sometimes that journey takes a lot of prayer and a lot of patience and a lot of perseverance. And so if you're on that journey and feeling like it's just not quite what you thought, or not as easy as you thought, don't give up. Keep persevering, keep leaning, and keep listening. Um, so right now we're in the middle of Lent, and if you've been around the church, you may be familiar with it. We've been talking about it here in, in relation to fasting, but Lent is a season of reflection and of examination. It's a season of repentance and preparing for Easter. As the people of Jesus, we are resurrection people. We are Easter people. We live in the joy of knowing that because of Christ's death and resurrection, we can know the Father and live with him in the presence of the triune God for eternity. The problem is, to have a resurrection, we have to have a death. And today, the death that we're going to be talking about is the death of our sin through repentance and fasting. The idea of repenting, repentance in the Old Testament comes from the Hebrew word shub, didn't know that until this week. There's your fun fact. Um, which means to turn around. Repentance is the process by which we recognize our sin, we confess it, and we turn from it. We turn toward the Father. Today we'll be moving around the Bible some, but we'll mostly be anchored in Joel. So if you have your Bible, let's turn to Joel 2. Um, this is going to be a little bit of an exercise maybe for some of you. Joel is one of the minor prophets, so it's a little book um, toward the back of the Old Testament. So you're going to go past Psalms and Proverbs, but if you hit Matthew, you went too far. Go back. Um, Joel uh, is not, we don't know a lot about Joel. There aren't any real indicators in the book of the time at which it was written. And the only other place, I thought this was interesting, that he is um, quoted is in Acts during Pentecost. So we'll kind of revisit that in a little bit. Um, but uh, Joel is mostly speaking to the people of Israel. And in chapter one, he begins with a call to repentance. The people he is preaching to have experienced a severe drought and a plague of locusts. On one hand, because we don't grow our own food here, we don't really have an understanding of how crippling drought and locusts could be. The picture up on the screen is from actually um, swarms of locusts were um, ravaging East Africa in 2020. So as if the year wasn't bad enough, in Africa they were facing severe food shortages because of locusts. And so we're seeing kind of the devastation after they've swept through. 
Um, I grew up in South Dakota. I actually have a fellow South Dakotan here this, this morning. It's pretty exciting. Um, but I grew up in South Dakota, which is um, mostly an agricultural community. So most people I grew up with were either farmers who raised crops or ranchers who raised cattle. And so I kind of joke, you know, when I lived in Chicago, it was all about the traffic reports, like what highways were clogged, how could you get someplace faster. And in South Dakota, it was all about the weather reports. So can I get in the field today to plant, or do I have to wait? Next week it's going to be dry. I can go and harvest. Some of our farmers here understand that as well. Um, but because of the importance of that, growing up, people would still talk about the 30s, the dirty 30s, and the dust storms that would blow through and how devastating they were to crops. And they would tell stories about these locusts, these swarms of locusts that would come through, and people would say, you know, in the morning they would have a full green yard, a garden and crops, and a, a flock or a swarm of locusts would come through, and there would be nothing left but dirt. They would literally eat everything to the ground. And when that's your living, that's devastating. When that's what you eat to survive, that's devastating. I think the closest thing maybe in this area we would understand is when the steel mills closed, that the sign of despair, the lack of prosperity that that signaled to us um, in this area, that's something similar. Today we know what it's like to live through a pandemic that's had economic impacts on everyone around us. We know what it's like to live in uncertainty and fear as we watch the political climate shift and we see relationships affected by differing political views. We may not know locusts and drought, but we know riots and protests and economic instability today. Joel responds to the challenges in his time by calling on the people to repent. If you look at chapter one, I'm not going to read um, a lot of it, but he kind of goes through and challenges every group of people. He talks to the old and the young. He talks to the drunkards and the addicts. He talks to priests and pastors, and he talks to laborers. No one is exempt from his call to repentance. In verses 13 and 14, it says, Dress yourselves in burlap and weep, you priests. Wail, you who serve before the altar. Come spend the night in burlap. As a side note, if you've ever dealt with burlap, it's uncomfortable. So just know that that's not a part of our faith, thankfully, at this time. You ministers of my God, for there is no grain or wine to offer at the temple of your God. Announce a time of fasting. Call the people together for a solemn meeting. Bring the leaders and all the people of the land into the temple of the Lord your God and cry out to him there. Joel urges the priests to assemble everyone for a time of fasting and repentance in response to the national crisis they are facing. I don't know about you, but when I'm facing a crisis, I think I kind of just want to eat brownies and nap and watch Netflix. <laughs> Hence, <laughs> why I look the way I do after 2020. <laughs> My gut instinct is not to fast and to repent, but to survive. The problem with survival is that when we're in survival mode, we don't move forward. Sometimes we even move backward and we embrace the unhealthy coping mechanisms that we've used in the past that are sometimes even sinful. And sometimes we can get stuck in survival mode and never move into the abundant life that Jesus promises us, where we could experience life that would be described more like thriving than surviving. What keeps us from thriving? Not always, but sometimes it's sin. Sin that so easily besets us. Sin that the enemy convinces us is left better hidden and private. Sin that is so much a part of us that we can't even imagine ourselves free from it. Sin that promises relief but leaves us with guilt and shame. 
Sin that promises freedom from legalism, but leaves us in greater bondage. Sin that promises fun, but leaves us feeling like failures. Sometimes we imagine that sin is static, that like to be in sin is that we're just kind of, um, I think it's homeostasis, like we're just not moving, we're just in the same place. But the Bible tells us that sin is so much more insidious than that. Sin leads to death. In James 1, verses 13 through 15, it says, And remember, when you are being tempted, do not say, God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. Sin doesn't just keep us from growing. It ultimately kills us. That's why God won't just stand by while we continue to give it space to grow in our life. He knows that its ultimate outcome is our destruction. So in his love for us, and in combination with his hatred for sin, which makes perfect sense when we understand what sin does to us, it's, if you want to think about it, it's kind of like cancer. If your loved one has cancer, and there's a fighting chance, if chemo and surgery and radiation are going to lengthen their life, we're going to fight it. We're not going to just let it grow. And so we want it, God looks at sin in the same way in our lives. He doesn't, he's not just going to allow it to grow unchecked to just consume us and take us over. In the same way, God hates sin because he, will, he knows that it will ultimately lead to our destruction if left untreated and unconfessed. And counterculturally, we know that it's because he loves us. Um, he will go to any great lengths to stop us from sinning unto death. You know, culture kind of tells us that God, if he loved us, he would just let us enjoy ourselves. That if God really cared about us, he would let us just do our own thing. But that's our, our own happiness is what's the most important thing. But instead, the picture that comes to my mind is of the sprinter sprinting toward the edge of a cliff and knowing that they're going to go over the cliff, but almost can't help themselves. They're sprinting for it. And as they do, someone throws a hurdle in front of them. Now, we would look at that and say, wow, that's a really awful thing to do. You're going to make them fall. Like, if someone doesn't know a hurdle's coming and they're sprinting, they're totally going to bite it. But I think that what God does for us through people maybe having a conversation with us, pointing our sin out, maybe through a sermon that addresses sin, um, or maybe just the natural consequences of our sin, God throws up those hurdles out of love to keep us from sprinting over the cliff to our own destruction. Um, God is not a wet blanket. He's not a party pooper. He's not a Debbie Downer. And he's not a harsh authoritarian. Yes, he is holy, meaning that he can't stand sin. And yes, he is other, but he is also our father. He is the Hebrew word hesed, which means loving kindness. He is, as we see here in Joel 2.13, merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. When we understand the destructive capability of sin, we understand why God spares nothing to rescue us from its power and why he has no tolerance for it. In fact, he sent his only son to die on the cross and be raised from the dead to give us a way to overcome sin and death. That's what we celebrate on Easter. And he did that, first of all, so that we can have a relationship with him. Romans 6, through 23 says, But now you are free from the power of sin and have become slaves of God. Now you do those things that lead to holiness and result in eternal life. 
For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, the free gift of God, is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And if you look at this, some of you maybe grew up in the church, and so you kind of know that as maybe like something we share with people who are far from God. But if you actually look at the context of this verse, it's in a chapter that's written to believers. And so there's the idea here that there can be wages even to our sin that can lead to death. That there are things that God will reach out and stop us from harming ourselves. The second reason that God sent his only son to die is to free us from bondage to sin. Earlier in that same chapter chapter in Romans 6, verses 5 through 7, it says, Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin, for when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And the third reason he died for us is so that we can live abundantly and in freedom. Jesus says in John 10.10, he's speaking about the devil here. He says, the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. So let's talk for a minute about the fun stuff. What are the sins that Jesus came to set us free from? And I'm trying to be specific here because I'm trying to help um, us listen to God's voice in here. And so my, my kind of invitation in this is where is God getting your attention as we talk through this this morning? What are the things that he's putting his finger on? So some of the sins that he came to set us free from are sins like addiction, addiction to wine or alcohol, addiction to success, addiction to spending, addiction to porn, addiction to eating too much, sins like stealing, lying, gossiping, hating your neighbor. Can we just talk about Facebook for a minute? There's a lot of hate on Facebook. There's a lot of people hating their neighbor on Facebook. Or coveting. Instagram, anyone? The houses, the clothes, the families, the vacations, all the, the, the like artsiness factor that I have zero in my body. Sins like bitterness, holding on to things that have been done to us for years and years, maybe within our friend groups or our family or a coworker, or even our, our spiritual family. Pride, having to be right, not being able to hear from anyone that maybe there's an area in your life where you need to kind of grow and, and change. And then the sin of withholding forgiveness. How do we move from bondage to freedom? How do we move from surviving to thriving? Confession, repentance, and fasting. As hard as confession is, I secretly kind of love it. It's like a direct assault on the enemy. The longer I spend serving Jesus and working with people, the more convinced I am of the truth of the name, the father of lies, that Jesus uses for Satan. In John 8, 44, Jesus says of the devil, he was a murderer from the beginning. He has always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So friends, when Satan says something to you, there are zero things that are true about anything that he says. When he condemns you, when he says God isn't good, when he said Jesus doesn't care about you, when he says you are alone, when he says that you are only worthy of guilt and shame, he is a liar and nothing that he says is true. Not even 0.5%. Zero things. 
When we are caught in sin, when we are living a lifestyle of sin or are living in addiction, Satan lives up to his name and he lies to us. He deceives us into believing that if we confess our porn addiction to our spouse, we'll lose everything and get divorced. That if we confess that we gossiped, that no one will respect us again. That if anyone knew what we eat or drink in secret, they would look on us in loathing and disgust. When Satan has us convinced that we will lose everything if we confess our sin, he has us right where he wants us. Defeated, discouraged, and isolated. Unable to live into the kingdom power and authority that God desires for us. I'm going to say that one more time. When Satan has us convinced that we will lose everything if we confess our sin, he has us right where he wants us. Defeated, discouraged, and isolated, unable to live into the kingdom power and authority God desires for us. So what is God's heart toward those who are caught in sin, living in captivity to its power over them, believing the lies of Satan and being deceived by them? Let's look again in Joel 2 at verses 12 through 13. It says, that is why the Lord says, turn to me now. While there is time, give me your hearts, Come with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Don't tear your clothing in grief, but tear your hearts instead. Return to the Lord your God, for he is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. He is eager to relent and not punish. There it is again, fasting in conjunction with repentance. God doesn't want you just to show up here on Sundays and to raise your hand in worship while you're struggling under the crippling weight of sin. In these verses, Joel writes, Give me your hearts. Don't tear your clothing in grief, Can't, but tear your hearts instead. And in Romans 2, 4, Paul writes, Don't you know how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? There it is again, that idea of turning, of repenting from our sin. Both Joel and this verse from Romans are in the context of talking about God's judgment, which is God's response to unrepentant sinners. But the point that both authors are trying to drive home is that God, because of his great love for us, desires to see us set free from the bondage of sin. Not so that he as almighty God can lord over us our inadequacies and can make us live according to his ridiculous rules because he's a narcissistic dictator, but because he is kindness incarnate, because he loves us and wants us to be free from the isolating and destructive power of the devil. God wants us to be able to peace out on Satan's power over us so that we can walk in the freedom of following Jesus. He is, as we see in Joel 2.13, a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. And honestly, that's more than I can say about my parenting some days. <laughs> um, and so God is a good father. I think about that sometimes when I'm struggling in parenting with my own attitudes, and I think, man, the things that he's doing are just annoying. The things that I do are much worse. And yet God's heart toward me as a father, his attitude toward me as a father, is one that abounds with compassion, abounds with love. So since we're not really a sackcloth, burlap, and ashes kind of people, <laughs> yes, thankfully, that's stuff is scratchy, what do we do when God in his kindness reveals our sin to us? Or maybe will no longer allow us to be quiet about it. Some people talk about this moment of conviction where they feel so heavily, I've experienced it myself too, that 
to not say something is like adding another sin. Like the father has clearly revealed and said, you need to say something. Or maybe it's been discovered against our wishes. You know, maybe someone at work or someone in your family has discovered um, an area in which you're in sin. What do we do? We confess it. We say it out loud to another person. I look at porn. Or I told you some information about someone that was not mine to share. I gossiped. Or I lied. I bought this even though we agreed not to spend money right now and I didn't want you to know. We break the power the enemy has over us by bringing it into the light. James 5.16 says, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. So I want to stop and talk about this for a minute because my prayer is that we as a spiritual family would be one that confesses our sins to one another so that we can find healing. So I want to give you a few pointers for this. I would also say that if you are someone who has confessed sin in the past or recently confessed sin or plans to, know that that will probably start a trend where other people come and confess sin to you. Kyle and I were talking about this, someone, a teacher that we know kind of mentioned that, and I hadn't really thought about it, but this is something I've been trying to live, and not perfectly by any means, over probably the last 20 years, and I have had a lot of people come and confess sin to me, and so I thought that was maybe just like, I mean, it's partly because of my role, but I think there's also something the Lord does, that when we confess sin, he allows other people to come and confess their sin to us. So point one, don't act shocked, even if you are. So, that looks like a good poker face, like, hmm, okay. Inside, oh my gosh. (laughs) Also, why are you telling me this? (laughs) They are already believing that they are terrible and unforgivable, okay? So let's not add to that. Let's not add to the guilt and shame that the enemy is already heaping on them. Don't say, wow, that's really terrible. I can't believe you did that. Or the nicer version of, I always thought you were a really mature Christian. I'm shocked that you did that. (laughs) Okay? Um, Respond with kindness, even in your face. Tap into the compassion of the Father, the never-ending love that he has for us. Fourth, say, thank you for telling me that took a lot of courage. Here's the deal. When someone says something to you, and depending on, I feel like with me it's always like, I think they're going to ask me like something really benign, like, can I have a seat for next Sunday? And then all of a sudden I'm having this conversation that I was not prepared for. And this is kind of my, my thing I hold on to is, thank you for telling me that took a lot of courage because that gives you a minute to process. And it also affirms the fact that it did, that they have been living in dread and fear of what would happen if they acknowledge this to anyone. And you are honoring that and encouraging them in that. Or something like, thank you for trusting me with this. I know that had to be hard, okay? We want to affirm, we want to encourage, we want to tap into the Lord's compassion. Finally, say, besides praying for you, which you should do in that moment, again, James 5.16, the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man produces wonderful results, um, ask them, how can I walk alongside you in this? Now, here's the deal. This is not, this monkey is not on your back, It is not yours to solve for them. This is something the Lord is asking them to walk through, but in confessing to you, he has asked you to be part of their journey. And so that's like, what resources do you need? Can I help you find a counselor? Can I help you? Can we talk to Steph and Kyle? Can we talk to another trusted mentor who is mature in the faith? Okay, so 
help them and come alongside them, but do not take responsibility for it. Now, it's one thing to hear a confession when it doesn't directly affect your life. It is an entirely other thing to hear a confession from your best friend or your spouse that directly affects you in a personal way. So in addition to the things above, I kind of want to just give us some other pointers. And guys, when this happens, it feels like a nuclear bomb is going off in your home. Okay, I'm not going to I'm not going to act like it's no big deal because it is hard and it is painful. I'm going to talk about why it's worth it in a couple minutes. But so first of all, be slow to speak. What you say can't be taken back. So my encouragement is again, just listen and be slow to respond if you at all can. Second, be quick to grieve. It is okay to feel grief if you find out that things are not as you thought they were in an important relationship or trust has been broken. Okay, so when I say be slow to speak, that doesn't mean paste a happy smile on your face and just be okay. It is okay to say, this is hard for me to process, or I need to process this, or this is very sad for me, or whatever words you choose to use in that moment. Three, ask for help. Do not, hear me, suffer in silence. Find a godly counselor, talk to Kyle or I, find a mentor that you trust, do not suffer in silence. The enemy would love to get in there and further use this to isolate you and get you on your own. Fourth, when you're ready, say, I'm on your team. And this may take a long time, and that's okay. But when you're ready, say, I'm on your team. This looks like asking questions like, what's your plan for dealing with this addiction or finding healing? What counselor are you going to call? Who are you going to tell? Who else are you going to tell that's going to walk alongside us with this? Who are we going to ask for help? Okay. Five, understand that depending on the severity of the sin or the length of it, short of a miracle, which God can do, God can absolutely deliver people in a moment, that is not always what he does, it will be a process with starts and stops. There probably won't be an easy answer. It will be a journey. And finally, thank them for telling you, even if it's devastating. Here's the deal. When that happens, I've heard people say, I wish I could just go back in time and just not know. The problem with that is sin is like toxic mold. And if your home is infested with toxic mold and your whole family's getting sick, everyone's having trouble breathing, it's affecting your quality of life, you would pay whatever you had to do or move out to get it fixed right? And this is the same thing. Again, the lie of the enemy is if we just left it, it would be fine. It will not be fine. It will take over your life and your family. Okay, back to repentance. This is just so much fun. Aren't we having a good time this morning? I said to Kyle, I said, I wanted to preach for Samuel, which was this cool passage about an idol falling before God, and instead I ended up in Joel talking about sin and repentance. So here we are having fun together. All right. If you are the one confessing and repenting of the sin, if the Lord put his finger on something this morning, do not wait. There will never be a good time to confess, no matter what the enemy tells you. It will never feel right. You will never be ready. Just do it. Rip off the Band-Aid. Go for it. Big or small, get it over with. Otherwise, the dread will just about kill you, and Satan will quickly convince you that there's too much to lose, it's not really that big of a deal, and everybody does it, so just let's ignore it and keep moving on. It is a big deal. You have everything to lose. And more than that, God wants you to live in freedom. 
And I know this is a shocker, but I'm going to suggest that as part of your journey of repentance, you fast. Fasting, when tied to repentance, involves our whole person. It includes our bodies in the process of repentance. Scott McKnight, in his book on fasting, calls it body turning. It's the idea that we don't just change our minds, our behaviors, but that we even turn our bodies away from the sinful behavior by depriving them of food and water. This combination is throughout scripture. In 1 Samuel 7, the Israelites repent of worshiping false gods by getting rid of their idols and fasting as a nation. And in Acts 9, when Saul meets the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus, he responds to Jesus' conviction of his sins by not eating or drinking for three days. And right here in Joel, uh, verse 15, Joel 2, verse 15, in response to crisis, there is an invitation to fast following his challenge to repent. Blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly. Although fasting is not a common occurrence in response to sin today, it has been for Christians for centuries. McKnight goes on to say that fasting is body turning from sin to faithful devotion to God. It is body talk of the entire person at home itself in a body. So what if in addition to confessing your sin to someone, you also ask them to fast with you, to pray for healing and freedom? So I'm only a living example. I have to own I've never done this or been asked to. But because of the examples that we see in Scripture, I believe that there is power in this body turning, in this whole person devotion to leaving sin behind. And here's what's promised in Joel after the repentance and the fasting. I mentioned at the beginning that Joel is only mentioned one other place, and that's in the book of Acts during Pentecost. So in Acts 2, Peter quotes Joel 2, 28 through 32. No, what you see was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Holy Spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I will pour out my Spirit even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. And I will cause wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and clouds of smoke. The sun will become dark, and the moon will turn blood red before that great and glorious day of the Lord's arrival arrives, but everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God promises that when there is fasting and repentance, we can see a move of God. As we look ahead to the fall, like Kyle talked about, and desire to see our friends and family and neighbors and co-workers come to Christ, we're asking God to move right here in the valley. We're asking him to do things that we can't even imagine right now. And from the patterns we see in Scripture, God moves when his people repent and turn away from their sin. There is power in repentance, and there is something about the body-turning nature of fasting that seems to add fuel to the already hot fire of repentant people. Let me say that one more time. There is power in repentance, and there is something about the body-turning nature of fasting that seems to add fuel to the already hot fire of repentant people. What's stopping you from confessing and repenting today? What lie has the enemy deceived you with? What lie is he using to keep you hostage? And if that's not you, are you prepared for your brothers and sisters to confess sin to you? Of the words that have been used to describe regen since beginning about six years ago, one of the main ones is authenticity. My prayer has been, as I'm preparing for the sermon, as we go through this fasting series, this Lent, 
that we would move from authentic to confession. That we wouldn't just be a safe place to come just as we are, but that we would be a safe place to be transformed through the process of repentance and fasting. That we would be amazed a year from now by the things that God has done and the people who are in the room because of our obedience to live out a lifestyle of confession and repentance. Let's pray. Father, I pray that in your compassion and in your kindness this morning, that you would put your finger on those areas of our life where you desire repentance. God, it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. It doesn't matter what anyone else does. It matters what you say. And so, Father, I pray that each and every one of us today would be so sensitive to your Holy Spirit this morning. Amen. So our hope has been to every week come back to the Lord's table together, and when we went in the box to get the communion stuff out, we had only 18 cups. So we prayed and asked the Lord to multiply them. Zach has the Lord multiplied them. So we're not going to do communion today. Uh, we thought about giving everybody one pod, and then like you could all like have a little crunch off the same cracker, and then I remembered COVID. So next week, so if you had that at home, sorry. At Regen, we want to be people who, there's two kinds of people Jesus describes. He talks about foolish builders and wise builders. And he says, foolish builders are those people who hear the word of God and don't put it into practice. He says, wise builders are those who hear from God and respond, right? And the longer you're a Christian, the easier it is to do this thing where, oh, Steph said some really good things and I wrote those down and I'm going to remember them and the new insight gave me this tingly feeling. But if there's not something concrete that you do with that, you're just a foolish builder. And I'm not calling you names, Jesus is. And so we set aside time in all of our gatherings for you to just have a moment to respond to in the quietness of your heart and in your mind, if you're a journaler, to write it out, to type it into your phone. Father, what are you calling me to do today? Some of you have a sin to confess. And as Steph has been preaching, the Holy Spirit is on you. And you know that because your heart is beating fast. And your palms are sweaty. And you're thinking, I should tell, no, I won't. Maybe, maybe now. Well, I'll wait till next week. No, no, I'll wait till this week isn't good. Today is the day. Today is the day of salvation. And um, Steph and I and Randy and Jairus, who are on our oversight team, uh, will be in the Otterbein room, and I'm just looking at them. We will be separate. So that if you're, a, and can I just invite, if you're one of the 99% of the men in the room that struggle with sexual sin, and you decide to confess that, can I just invite you to tell Jairus and I? If you're a woman and you would need to confess something of sexual sin, because it's not a male thing only, or something else, go to Randy or Steph. Does that make sense? Um, if it's not that, that's okay, but we just don't want you to feel like you have to, you're taking a big step forward and now you have to ask Steph to go away because you don't want your pastor's wife to, you know, so. Um, but today is the day. And, and if you've heard a confession from your spouse or your friend, in the last couple of weeks and you've not responded well, that is now a sin you have to confess, isn't it? Um, and, and, I, and so as you go to the Lord, 
is the call to fast is the call to say something today. If you're watching online and you're thinking, I can't get in that room, would you like message us or text us or send up a smoke signal and somebody will get in touch with you today? But today is the day of salvation. Seek me while you I may be found. About a year ago, I confessed some sin to Steph and I'm so glad I did because our life is just so different. And um, y'all, there is nothing you could say that would freak us out. I've been pastoring a church of mostly unchurched people for about six years now. There are zero things that you can tell me that will freak me out. In fact, the more honest you are, the more I just, I just love that moment. And so let me just give you a moment to be with God. And maybe while this is happening, Randy and Jarris and Steph, if you guys want to go. So take a moment, I'll pray. Father, I just pray for my spiritual family and for the ones who right now are wondering if they should go and now thinking, oh, to stand up in front of everybody else. If someone in this room judges you for standing up in a minute, that's between them and Jesus, and Jesus deals harshly with those kinds of people. Okay? But if you come in humility, um, the Lord will meet you. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I'm thinking about how he writes how confession is a breakthrough to community. I'm thinking about the person. We love you. We're praying for you to experience all of the freedom that Jesus wants you to have this week. We'll see you next week.